0: Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to Mark Ambinder, who is the author of Deep State. Uh, I hope that you enjoy the uh, podcast today. Thanks. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure of talking with Mark Ambinder about his new book. Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Heath. It's great to be here. Yes, it was a real pleasure to read your book. Um, So often we have, um, I, I have the chance to interview those with university affiliations, uh, yours are a little bit different. And so I wonder, before we actually get started talking about your really interesting book, talk a little bit about your background and, and who you write for now and who you've written for in the past. And, um, you know, where, where, where you sit. Um, I spent
1: the past 11 and a half years um, as a journalist right out of college. Uh, I took a job in 2001, actually, September of 2001, eight days before 9-11, At ABC News. Uh, that was my first job out of college. And I remember on September 11th, of course, the entire world changed, uh, and as did my introduction to the world of television news. And for the next two months, the schedule was something like 6 a.m. until 8 p.m. And it was just an incredibly, uh, crazy time. And even though I worked in the political unit of ABC News, my interests, uh, were always broader than that, and when major events happen um, at television networks, everyone pitches in and does everything, so I was exposed to a number of different subject areas, and that whetted my appetite in particular for the type of national security coverage that I was able to transition to a little later on in my career. So I worked for ABC News. Um, I worked for a few publications in Washington, the Atlantic National Journal, Also, uh, the hotline, which is a political publication. And a couple of years ago, I decided that I really wanted to make the switch full time to covering national security, particularly trying to figure out the way that the pipes fit together. Because it seemed to me that we're all fascinated by the operational end of what we see. The policy as it exists on paper or as it exists in newspapers, but I was fascinated with how things are put together on the back end, and it struck me that I could use my fascination um, and focus in on that as a subject matter, and that was one of the genesis, one of the ideas that that proved a genesis for this this particular book to look at the structure of secrecy and and how it
0: influences the
1: policies that
0: actually result. Yeah, and you wrote this book uh, with a co-author. So, uh, how did how did you come to this collaboration? Who is your co-author, and how did you come to work together on this project? My
1: co-author, uh, his name is Dave Brown. Uh, DB Grady is a is, uh, nom de feu. Uh He uh, is a veteran of the U.S. Army who was a paratrooper in Afghanistan. We met on Twitter. We had Twitter. Cool. Uh I guess uh, you could call it a conclave. I don't remember precisely what the genesis was, although he told me it had something to do with Jay Leno. We started talking, mm-hmm. and we realized uh, we had a mutual fascination with government secrecy, uh, and from there, a book proposal was born, and we started to collaborate and became really good friends in person. So it's uh, yes. it's uh, a salutary tale of of uh, online interchange.
0: Yeah, and you begin with an author's note. Um, which I think is, is worth mentioning, giving, given the subject matter. And you write, this is a book about secrets, and then go on to explain kind of how you did the research. So, And because this is a book about secrets, um, did you have access to classified material? Did you get permission to publish the book? Um, what's the uh, Because this is a, a little different than the way many academic yeah. books go about the research, how, how did you do this?
1: Well... It, it's interesting you ask that question because it actually gets to one of the the central conclusions of the book, funnily enough, which is that national security journalists, particularly those who have developed some sort of reputation for being reputable to some degree, have an enormous degree of power and latitude, um, and virtually virtually no restrictions. Um, Legal, I mean, there are some, there are legal restrictions that apply to everyone as U.S. citizens, but precedence and deference to national security journalism, when it comes to publishing stuff like this, and there are some peripheral issues that we can get into, are pretty large. So I, you know, I, I, I didn't have to check um, with anyone before I published anything, although I was very careful. There were a number of chapters that contain information on programs that are classified, and continue to be classified, and it would be responsible to simply print everything that you learn. Um, so, uh, in a couple of cases, uh, I spent a lot of time doing my best, because if something is classified, it's hard for people who are read into those programs, who have signed oaths not to disclose them, to give you guidance as to whether something is correct or not correct, Um, and even whether something is disclosed would harm national security. And that was my primary concern, other than accuracy. Um, But I'll I'll give one example of of how that works with regard to a specific subject. Um, The chapter on the National Security Agency's surveillance initiatives after September 11th, uh, I spent a lot of time initially just looking at everything in the public domain that's been published and said about it officially. Um, television programs, documentaries, Senate reports, declass- declassified NSA documents. Um, and I put together what I thought was an outline of the program as people do about it. And then some educated guesses. This was just an outline form of what the classified portions of the program look like. Um, And then I did some reporting based on that body of knowledge. I called up a bunch of people uh, who were present at the beginning of of this creation um, at all levels. And I got varying degrees of information from them. Some of them were happy to talk about the very broad strokes of it, but in ways that led me to, let's say I, I had a list of three guesses as to something, I could cross out one of those, Uh, one of those guesses, and they helped me narrow it down. Um, I I did not actually have, until um, a very fortuitous happenstance on one of the the final days before publication, uh, anyone who was willing or voluntarily said, oh, well, yeah, I'll tell you whatever you want. A lot of it was process of elimination. A lot of it was asking people questions that were more and more refined. But I sat down. Once I had the chapter written, I, I went back to... Three people who were involved in the program, um, some of whom you know have, have names that, that your readers with familiarity in the subject um, will know. And I gave them the full chapter, and I said, you know, you have no responsibility to do anything. You can even turn this chapter into the FBI or the government or whatever. But what I'm a- what I'd ask is if you could point me to areas that, if disclosed, would, you know, would harm national security, one, uh, and two, it would be something that, you know, would make me look foolish if I published because it was inaccurate. Um, And and all three of those officials were helpful to varying degrees. One of them Mm sat down with me, and it it was a very amusing conversation because we would get to points that he would be silent and I would have to interpret that silence in a certain way. But again, just through a process of reading body language, um, triple-checking particularly uh, facts with with people, and, and being, I think, concerned appropriately with the effects of publishing something that still remains classified, although, you know, the program in, in its broad outline, uh, as we, we lay it out in that particular chapter, um, I think can be talked about without harming national security, and that's the judgment call ultimately that I made. Um, but I think that uh, that that gives you a flavor for how some of the some of the, ch- the chapters are reported. I mean, not, no, nothing is ever reported in the same way.
0: Uh, yeah. But, but yeah. And as a result, you have these just you know very very interesting and, and sort of peeking behind uh, the curtain that we don't often get to peek behind. Um, you know, the book is a lot about executive power and the extent to which executive power has been stretched to accommodate this need for secrets, sometimes appropriate, sometimes not appropriate. And I interviewed for this podcast Mitch Solenberger, who did this work on um, uh, White House czars, and I think it bears some similarities in terms of a bigger picture of what the executive branch and what the presidency has become in terms of what it feels like it needs to do um, and, and the extent to which that, that, that fits within our constitutional system. But you start the book with a, a really interesting exchange between Leon Panetta and Congressman Mike Rogers. Uh, I wonder if you can recount that story and, and how that, that interchange that they have relates to this broader argument that you're making about government secrecy.
1: Well, if you recall the basic sequence of events that led to the killing of Osama bin Laden by a U.S. Navy SEALs, um, there was a period maybe of a fairly significant planning that went into the operation. Um, that once once there was a, a reasonable in the intelligence community, there are you know there were many differing opinions as to whether or not Osama Bin Laden actually was there at the compound in Abbottabad, um, but it became clear toward uh, the the uh, the end of 2010 that there was something significant happening there. And as of that point, there was no need either formally or informally to notify any of the congressional committees because there was no. Significant intelligence activities that were going on and nothing that was reprogrammed. I mean, this was all part of the normal, uh, sturm and drum of, of intelligence operations. They just happened to be on to something. Uh, and there's certainly no, no requirements that, um, certainly not the intelligence committees, but uh, the armed services committee or anyone else notified anytime the Joint Special Operations Command, which is the, the, uh, the group of special missions units and standing task forces that do a lot of clandestine covert missions for the military, there's no obligation for them to notify the Armed Services Committee or any other committees before they start to plan. Um, But with something like this, something that had such national importance attached to it, Leon Panetta decided on his own, he was the director of CIA at the time, without notifying the White House, that he was going to bring in the intelligence committees, his overseers, uh or his partners as he might like to say early on and tell them to the extent that he, he could what was going on, what the plans were, what might happen. Uh and not just them, but also when I say them I mean um the this is a what we call a gang of eight notification unofficially. Mm-hmm. Uh the uh ranking member and uh the uh the chairman of both the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, as well as their, their sort of key staff members um, who are all professional people who have spent their, you know, years in the Intelligence Committee, all the staff members have. Um, so, uh, w- once uh, uh, the Congress turned over and Mike Rogers became the head of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, Leon yeah. I held a dinner for him uh, the seventh floor conference room at the CIA. It's a fascinating place in the, the director's conference room, which is a dining room, because they have those, I don't know what you call them, those sort of shushers that provide this white noise background um, mm-hmm. and constantly make the windows vibrate in a way that people can't put lasers onto the windows and figure out what people are saying inside it's a very, very interesting, interesting experience to 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 go there. so, so he and Rogers had dinner, and then after dinner, um, he sort of said, "Look, I want to, you know, I want to tell you something." And he motions to Rogers into his office uh, and says, "Hey, um, you know, I think we might be onto something here uh, with Osama bin Laden, um, and I want you to come back uh, in a few weeks and take a look at all the intelligence we have." Um and you know, Rogers was uh was um and Rogers was the one who told me the story. Rogers was very surprised at the proactive disclosure of something like this because in the past the executive branch would be extremely reluctant to share something like this with Congress on the grounds that it might leak leak. And this is the type of thing that you just could not have leaked. Um it's actually really hard to find a leak of something that actually resulted in significant national security harm, and that's something I discuss later. But in this case, if this had leaked, mm-hmm. Osama bin Laden would not have been dead as a uh, something in the national interest. You could argue a lot of different things about the raid, but uh, that that would have been, certainly to the Obama administration, a significant disappointment. Um, Panetta wound up doing the same thing with the other members of the debate and their staff and said, look, all the intelligence I'm going to share with you beforehand, you can come to the TI whenever you want and look at all, the, all of the models we have, all the intelligence, you can ask the question, which they did. Um, and even, he even gave them advanced notice of the actual rate itself in little cryptic telephone calls saying, look, the thing is going to happen, or some variation on that. The reason why he did this, even though he had no obligation to, um, was twofold. Well, number one, he knew that the intelligence committees, if they felt they had buy-in, if something went wrong, would be more understanding and accepting of what the CIA had done and what the administration had done. So it was kind of a prophylactic PYA type type of Mm -hmm. maneuver. But it also, in some ways, is emblematic of how brilliant a bureaucrat Leon Panetta is. um, Knowing that when you're you're able to show someone that you trust, and just the human factor in oversight has long been neglected, I think, um, at least to, to my sense as to my knowledge, when I was trying to look through some of the political science literature. Um, but if there's a, a human connection of trust between the director of the CIA and his overseer, um, and it's something that's built immediately. Again, Mike Rogers had just stepped into this position. Um, it sets the tone for so many other different, arguably less immediately important, but in the long run when it comes to budgets and authorizations for activities and and notifications and mistakes that the CIA would never make, it just makes things a lot easier. And it turns the overseer-overseee relationship into more of an enabling partnership that allows both constituents to get what they wanted uh, done. Um, and, you know, the, the only way you could do that, the only way the executive branch can facilitate that, is if they're more forthcoming with the sharing of secrets. If they proactively decide, okay, even though we have this position that we're the only ones who get to decide what's national security information and how to disclose it, we're going to be a lot more proactive about that in general we're going to bring congressmen as partners. And you can imagine a lot of different if you go back and counterfactuals are are um, sort of unforbotten, you know, historical uh some interests interest yourself with. But you know, there are a bunch of different policies. You you could wonder if executive branch has brought Congress in early and more or more I don't know, more fully, um, uh, a lot of the sort of Thorny legal issues that still plague us to this day on detentions, on surveillance, uh, might
0: not be playing because, right. but, but only if it doesn't, only if it doesn't leak. That's, only that's if sort of what, yeah, that's what sort of works so well with right. with um, what and and you know it works well if if everyone um, sort of plays by the rules and doesn't leak. And it, in this this um, this part of the book, in your discussion, I, I think towards the end of it. About leaking, I think it's so interesting um, to readers outside of journalism because we always—we I, I don't think it's something that political scientists quite know how it actually works. Right. And so I wonder if you could just sort of allow us to peek behind the curtain again. Yeah. How do how do leaks actually work? Uh, maybe you could walk through not a specific um, leak, but but how might might a secret get out? You, you talked a little bit about good leaks and bad right. leaks, but. Mechanically, what, what is a reporter, how does, how does that, how does that actually work? In my experience, actual,
1: and again, you, you can, uh, a lot of the sort of categorizations are sort of self, in the sense they, they, self-organize whistleblowers or whistleblowers. They see something wrong. They don't feel that the government has a way of redressing it internally or they've tried and they're not satisfied and they'll find a member of the press and, and give the information to them. That happens a lot of people think that's what a leak is in, in popular form. Um, or the other popular impression is, OK, a leak is a government official wants to influence policy and will yeah, call up somebody, Mark Mazzetti, who's a great intelligence for the New York Times, and say, hey, the CIA wants to do this. Um, that might happen more to Mark because of his platform and because he has great sources who will do that. Uh, you consider, or most of what one considers leaks, to be honest. And this is not a, a sort of a, a self, uh, I'm not, it's not a self-aggrandizing or, or a way of, uh, of of pumping up the egos of journalists, but a lot of it is those of us who spend our, our lives, and literally, I'm the type of I, I spend like until two in the morning sometimes just reading obscure reports, mm-hmm. we come up with hypotheses and theories about things that are secret. And we're constantly slowly accumulating information. And when you get to a certain point where you're, you know, this, this close to figuring out what a secret might actually be, at that point, you'll talk to someone. Someone might either let a flip or someone might confirm that for you. But you've gotten 90% of the way there yourself. I will Mm -hmm. say though that the people who were in my, have been in, in my experience, the most casual in terms of discussing information they know to be classified without any caveats are people with fruit salads on their chest and long, Mm -hmm. long, long records in government and very high powerful positions. Not the 99.9% of people with security clearances, not the 99.9% of people who are constantly being subject to leak hunts and witch hunts. Um, Mm -hmm. they, They don't talk in part because they're very afraid of talking, they don't have the leverage uh, perceived or actual that these, these policy makers, these senior military intelligence officials actually have.
0: So right. now, which which ex, explains a little bit about why the Panetta Rogers secret didn't leak. Because, right. because the, the, the circle is small. But, it, but that doesn't explain another anecdote that uh, you have at the end of the book, which is this story about the accidental shots fired in the direction of the president of, of Iran, by Secret Service. That's a fascinating story. What happened there, and and why wasn't this leaked? Because this was observed not just by high-ranking officials, but there were lots of other people around, it sounds like. So, what happened, and how come that didn't leak out?
1: I was asking some former Bush administration officials a very blanket question. So, were there times, my question was, when someone's decision to either disclose something or not disclose something influenced how you viewed an issue. And one person in particular said, oh, you know, this, this the time when, you know, the Secret Service uh, shot a weapon as Ahmadinejad was getting into his car, and he didn't say anything about it. The person just volunteered that. And, of course, I wanted to know more, and so I You know, I looked into it, and I talked to a bunch of people. Um, And so far as I can I can gather, because the the Secret Service, having incidentally, um, although I have a pretty good working relationship with them, having done a bunch of articles with them, this was a subject that even though I've been asking them about for a long time, even though I had actually two years later observed up close the way that Ahmadinejad's detail interacted with uh, the Secret Service detail guarding him in New York a few years subsequent to that, they would not talk about it until yesterday when when uh, it became a public story. Um, but uh w- what happened in that case was it, 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 it's a it, it, it still is a puzzle. Um, but there was an item in the president's daily brief that said that when Ahmadinejad and his daughter Raj were loading into the limousine um a secret service agent actually accidentally discharged the shotgun. This was again in the in the p d b um and uh no one and in in new york at the u n just yeah this is at in New York. I was told it was at the intercontinental hotel uh the the secret service says it was at the United nations so the secret service admits that this happened. they dispute that ahmadinejad was in the immediate vicinity or his security cell was in the immediate vicinity. But the White House the next day was extremely concerned, um, and was told that Ahmadinejad was in the immediate vicinity and knew about this, and the Iranians knew about this, and they were just waiting for Ahmadinejad to say the Secret Service just tried to shoot me. Your Secret Service did, um, you know, you evil infidel Americans. Mm-hmm. But he said nothing, uh, and it's very surprising to members of the Bush administration who expected him to demagogue this. And the conclusion they drew from this. Uh, and then this is according to two Bush administration officials speaking to me independently, they said that this conclusion was drawn by
0: some of the president's senior
1: advisors, was that maybe Ahmadinejad thinks more strategically than the Bush administration might think. Um And as one element of, of many different elements, that influenced the way that they looked at him <clears throat> from then on, when they try to assess his motivations for, for very good actions and and various statements. It's very hard for me to understand how, e- even in the absence of of anyone in the middle of the United Nations General Assembly, when there are thousands of security personnel, I mean, inside that small UN area, uh, and um, hundreds of super service agents, somebody could fire a weapon. Uh, into a motorcade as it was loading and staging and not have it be disclosed. Um, yeah. that's a, you know, it's a, I have no idea why that didn't leak out, even in, even in the, 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 the sort of simplified prune form that the, that the Secret Service now concedes that the event happened. Um, and again, their, their big dispute with me is about whether Ahmadinejad was was privy to this, actually saw it, heard it, as his detail did. My understanding is, again, the Bush administration believed that he did and was significantly concerned that he did, and when they contemporaneously went back and asked agents and tried to figure out what happened, they were told that he was right there when it happened.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I'm not going to let you give away any of the other secrets from the book, because do want everyone to go out, but I think this is really what makes the book such a, a, a really a fascinating read. Um, if we step back and try to reach some conclusions about about where you're headed with this book, um, you, you talk in the final chapter about uh, WikiLeaks and some of the sort of direction that we're heading in terms of technology and what you was know, really going to be possible in the future. So maybe briefly, what's in store for government secrecy in the future? What's what, what are the te- what are some of the big takeaways from your book?
1: Government's going to have to be a lot
0: smarter with
1: how it sets up the regime that governs secrecy. There are a lot of informal pressures uh, that will be brought to bear. And one of them is the rise of all of this open source material and activities. It is a lot of things that were secrets during the Cold War can be easily found using Google Maps today. Um, you know, uh, and uh, there are a legion of activists uh, and secrecy researchers who are using every tool available to them to constantly pry and product the government and significantly publish their results immediately and gain a wide audience for them. And they don't have to be credentialed journalists. And I there are pros and cons that I think that's ultimately a good thing. It's a check on the government's power. Um, but it's also a new way of doing business, and it means that the government itself is going to have to contend with a lot—a public that's a lot more skeptical and has access to a lot more information. And so, um, along with these informal mechanisms, the government will, at some point—and and I think you're seeing this now—with the Obama administration's recent decisions about the targeted killing policies and others, they'll come to the, the realization that that it will be impossible to keep. Two of their equities alive simultaneously. Um, one of the equities is uh, that you know the government has this, the executive branch, I should say. When I say the government from here, I mean the executive branch has the it's essentially the only say in determining what the secret and how the secret is released. Um, and the other significant uh equity that that the government will, the executive branch will always claim is the deliberative privilege of not explaining why policy is made um, and there's of course a difference between a policy secret and an operational secret and policy secrets they tend to be seen as more sensitive just because uh, they developed, they're developed they in some ways they're they're more immediate they're developed by senior officials themselves, but they don't actually get into classified sources and techniques and materials. They're simply about what the government does. And when it comes to issues like cybersecurity, quantum computing, targeted killings, the government will find that proactive disclosures of its rationale for policy will help it be able to keep secret
0: operationally
1: what it needs to keep secret, I think. So it will will have to make that balance. If it doesn't make that balance, it's going to face, the executive branch is going to face, the president is going to face challenges from not just outsiders who are outraged about the proliferation of government secrets, but an increasingly rusted Congress and a fairly, relatively emboldened federal court system. You're beginning to see judges challenge the idea that the executive branch is the be-all and end-all when it comes to secrecy. And and some judges are are actively challenging what had been long-established precedent when it comes to some state secrets privilege, state secrets doctrine. Of course, the government can assert that a piece of evidence or even um, a subject is so classified that, that it, you know, can essentially peremptorily dismiss the legal process when, when it comes to that particular subject. Um, Simply determining uh, whether to, it, it, in in the course of a, a lawsuit uh, that, that some organizations filed to force disclosure of something under the, the FOIA, law, you know, to use what they would call a GLOMAR exception test in relation to that famous CIA uh, program to cut to uh, use that used Howard Hughes' submarine to raise try and raise a Russian submarine that was on the floor. Uh, of the Pacific Ocean, was called the Glomar Explorer the CIA, um, was permitted by the courts when challenge, challenged to provide records on that to use the formulation that they cannot disclose whether or not some records exist because to do so itself would violate national security. Those privileges, um, you know, which are not enshrined in, in law, but simply precedental, are under attack from judges uh, who have seen over time how the executive branch can abuse these privileges. And so it will be within the interest of the government, significantly, I think, the executive branch to be more proactive about how they disclose, what they disclose, and to whom they disclose it to. And ultimately, I think that will mean sharing a lot more about policy. And mm-hmm. I think that will be a good thing. It will spur debate. It may be harder to implement certain things, at least in the near term, but in the short term harder. long term these policies will be more legitimate Uh, particularly if they're subject to some sort of debate, advance notes that Congress has brought in, if public stakeholders are, even if that means the government has to sort of strain and stretch itself and find ways to discuss very sensitive issues, issues that they'd just rather not discuss. Um, That's where I think that's where I think this is going. Obviously, another trend is the sort of the self styled um, anti secrecy entrepreneur, the Julian Assange's of the world, who will use the, uh, the deference that the government gives towards distributors of classified information. Me as a journalist, you know, if uh, Bradley Manning were to give some information to me, one person, and I were to print it and give it to a million people, he would get prosecuted. And at the worst, they might, someone might try to find out who my sources were. Um mm-hmm. you know, that is a privilege that, that journalists have and will still have, although there may be some backlash to that too, because the executive branch, the courts might say, well, wait a minute, what distinguishes you from a Julian Assange? This is something that journalism is wrestling with now. So I, I would look to those areas in particular as, uh, as things to watch for. As the, the secrecy debates unfold, and one of the fascinating things and frustrating things about writing a book on secrecy is how quickly the debate changes. The laws, the interpretation of the laws evolved. government positions change, um, you know, because we call in the book, which was published, uh, you know, we had to finalize it um, very early in the year for so the government to be more transparent about cybersecurity and to kill it. And, you know, they're, fortunately for us, unfortunately for the book, they are, you know, by the time the book is published,
0: moving along that route anyway. Mark, this is just such an interesting book, and, you know, when when this happens, where things you suggest in a book have already happened by the time it's published, that's usually a sign that you're all on the right track. And so your book, uh, Deep State, Inside the Government Secrecy Industry, that you wrote with D.B. Grady, it was published by John Wiley and Sons uh, this year, and uh, it's available widely, I'm sure, at the John Wiley uh, uh, website, but also on Amazon. Mark, thank you so much for your time today.
1: You're quite welcome. My pleasure.